Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano, who is, uh, as he has been for the past several months, uh, in the remote office in, in Charlottesville. How are things there, Frank? Everything in Charlottesville. Hey, yeah, although I know, I know that our listeners really, really care about our weather, uh, my well, weather global warming, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's that. actually, the, the weather is broken in the past 24 hours, so oh. it's actually quite temperate. It's, it's 75 degrees today. It's, it's, it's quite nice. Oh. Autumn has arrived, and, and students have started to come back in Edinburgh, so so we're back in uh, academic mode. Right. How healthy is the American democracy? Uh, that is a question that's asked in a recent article uh, by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziplot in uh, the recent issue of The Atlantic, in an article titled How American Democracy Fell So Far Behind. Uh, this is based on their uh, forthcoming book, which will come out next month, Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. Uh, and so we would thought we would use this episode to discuss this article and the claims they make about the state of American democracy and, and how healthy it is. Uh, so, Frank, you, you picked this article uh, for, for our discussion. Tell, tell what jumped out at you about this piece that, that you, you made it... Uh, relevant yeah i mean there were two elements to it that i that i found appealing and i realized we've covered some of this ground before in in different topics but but mm. two two elements really appealed to me david one was uh they really take a historic view i mean they they, they, they try to place this in, in a broader historic context both in terms of american history but also they take a global or, or a, it's not quite global because it's really transatlantic in latin america but they take a comparative view uh, comparing uh, the history of the U.S. Constitution and, and, and American political practices um, to other democracies in, in mainly Western and Northern Europe and Latin America. And I found both of those approaches quite interesting. So it wasn't a kind of lament about gerrymandering or things mm. like that, or the, the kinds of things that are undoubtedly problems, but it was more... To, it was taking a broader, wide-angle view, and, and I like the kind of comparative dimension and the historic dimension. And what, what it begins with a with a set piece about the creation of the Norwegian Constitution in 1814, noting that it was the second oldest written constitution in the world. It's actually not true because the Massachusetts Constitution is the oldest written constitution in the world. The uh, continuously in in place the. And for two guys, they're both at Harvard. They should know that they work in Massachusetts. Uh, but but leaving that aside, they begin with the Norwegian Constitution of 1814, and I guess they mean national constitution. Um, but they begin with the Norwegian Constitution of 1814, observing that it was drafted and and adopted 25 years after the U.S. Constitution, and that um, and noting that it had lots of anti-democratic features because it was adopt, adopted in 1814, but that the Norwegian constitution, framers of the Norwegian constitution looked to the U.S. example. So they begin with the premise that there was a time when the U.S. constitution was the was an inspiration for constitution makers around the world. And the Norwegians looked to it, but that in the two centuries since, the Norwegian constitution has been, been uh, amended many, many times and, and changed to become more and more democratic as a result, uh, whereas the United States constitution has not. So they begin with that kind of that set piece and that premise. And there's a lot of data and a lot of uh, quite persuasive data in this in this essay or examples from from other parts of the world showing how um, 
you know, 19th century constitutions are not terribly democratic or they have democratic features, but that over the course of the subsequent two centuries, most national, most nation states, most democracies at least, have sought to become more democratic, not less so, and in terms of their constitutional arrangements. And the United States has not at least at the same pace. They do acknowledge there have been important changes in the U.S. Constitution, but that the the United States Constitution is not, which once set the standard, has kind of fallen behind. And I found that I found that an interesting uh, perspective on this particular issue. What What did you yeah. think? Well, I was also fascinated by that that Nor- Norway comparison because I don't know anything about Norway. Um, you know, and you know, they point out that this Norwegian Constitution you know, was not in eighteen fourteen even particularly democratic compared to the American constitution. It still had very monarchical elements. It still had all kinds of, of restraints upon, on the rights of, of citizens and, and voting and, and what have you. Uh, but that, you know, over the course of, of two centuries, it's been amended 316 times, uh, which is 10 times more than the American constitution has been amended. Um, and that, you know, one of the points the, the article references multiple times is uh, Freedom House's Global Freedom Index, which tries to assess, um, you know, the, the 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 degree of democracy and, and degree of freedom in, around the world, and points out that the countries that have done, you know, really well in the past few years, um, you know, are places like Norway, which which at one point got a perfect score. I think in the most recent one that didn't quite make a perfect score. Canada's done quite well, uh, but the United States has done less well uh, and has actually sort of fallen um, in its rankings over the past 10 years or so. Um, and so we're, we're, we're the United States in terms of its comparative health of its democracy is, is sort of in the middle of the pack for, for democracies around the world and, and, you know, with peers that we don't tend to compare ourselves uh, with, like Argentina um, or uh, Taiwan as Pure democracies and not the one, you know, either economic or, or political powerhouses in the world. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. And, and what, you know, assuming most listeners haven't read this this essay, and I, I actually commend it to them. I think they should mm. read it if, if they have the time uh, and access to it. Um, what's interesting is this isn't about Trump per se. It's not. Mm. It's not a screed against Trump, or uh, it's it, it's more. It, it's it's a. Kind of wider view than that. It's it's saying like what what are the system? It might be saying okay, what are the kind of features of the U.S. system that might have produced Trumpism or or given uh, Trump the kind of power he's got? But it's not about it's not a screed against Trump. That's not what this is. It's more of a systemic look, and I found that that really interesting. I mean, they say they begin with the observation that if you look at if you take a kind of more transnational view on this, like the features of constitutions that that were characteristic in the uh, 19th century um, were sort of giving landed um, landed people and 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 landed areas more power relative to urban areas. Um, if there is judicial review, and and the United States is a bit of an outlier, and, and again, this is a kind of important and a, a, an attractive feature of the American Constitution in the early days, uh, giving 
um, uh, justices in the judicial branch, oversight of, of uh, the legislative branch, but also uh, what we see in many other places. That doesn't come until later, but 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 there's there are term limits or there are age limits mm. for 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 judges in most countries. Um, so so there's an important difference there, and how the legislatures are structured, how when, when universal suffrage eventually emerges. Uh, so there there are kind of broad areas where. Basically, what they their argument is: Look, when the American Constitution was created in in 1789, it is quite democratic. It has undemocratic features. It has features uh, intended to protect uh, minority views, uh, but it's relatively democratic for for its time. It serves as an inspiration for these subsequent constitutions in the 19th century. But those constitutions and or those those polities then adopted more democratic features by way of reform over the course of the next two centuries, and the United States didn't. And kind of, you know, and therefore what we've seen as the United States has modernized and become more, you know, it's become larger, it's become more urban, it's, you know, the population is, it, you know, has, has grown uh, by an order of magnitude, is those undemocratic features have been magnified to the point where there are real uh, issues with minority rule in the United States, as we've seen. And, you know, we, I mean, we've talked about many of these things, the mm. way the Electoral College operates, the fact that rural states, especially in the Senate or small small population states, often rural um, because of the, the, the power that senators have, um, you know, can, can really hold the rest of the country to ransom and so on. And, you know, our peer, the, the peer democracies of the United States Generally, don't have those features. I was a little intrigued that you know they they were kind of holding up the reform of the House of Lords as a you know, kind of example of a, of a of a success. Um, I'm not quite sure I agree with them on that. I think the House of Lords is pretty undemocratic. It's pretty useless, but it's also mm. pretty undemocratic. But if, maybe by comparison to the Senate, uh, which is is the point they're making. But mm. I found that you know I found that compelling as a kind of broad view. To be sure, yeah. I mean, one of the things that intrigued me looking at at this piece and sort of thinking about well, how do the United States, the democracy in the United States, the constitution, both big C constitution and little C constitution, how it's evolved since 1787, 1789, however you want to frame that. Um, you know, there, there are many points in time in which the United the development of American democracy and democracy around the world seems to be more or less in pace with one another. You know, when we think about uh, removing um, property qualifications for voting, universal manhood suffrage, all of that. You know, different countries adopt that at different points in time, but it's, you know, comparable. Uh, adoption of a secret ballot, roughly the same period of time in different places. Uh, extending suffrage to women, likewise, very similar. Um, the kind of stagnation point, though, in which the United States seems to be falling behind, seems to be in the post-World War II period. Um, and it seems like part of the argument they're making is that that you know, the United States has stagnated in its constitutional development, both big C and small C constitution. You know, they point out that the constitution hasn't been amended in in you know more than 20 years, and you know, the last meaningful constitutional amendment was 50 years ago um, in terms of access to democracy. Um, and so I guess the question that they 
you know, they answer this in a variety of ways, but it's causing me to think of why has the United States' sort of movement towards a more democratic system, why is that stagnated as much as it has? I think, I mean, you're right. And I, and I think they do raise that issue. I, I think, I mean, I would say a couple of things in response to that. Um, and that dimension really comes out thanks to their comparative approach. Uh, because otherwise, certainly the version of American history I was taught in school and probably you were taught, uh, you know, before this period of intense partisan conflict, you know, it was sort of like, well, it was quite Whiggish. It was the kind of expansion because of the civil rights movement after, you know, the United States triumphed in the, in the, in the Second World War. Then the civil rights movement occurred uh, or as a result, in part because of that. Mm -hmm. Cold War is going on. It's it's an existential struggle, and and you know, we are the good guys in this, standing up for liberty and capitalism and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a rather Whiggish reading because they no no part you know progress is going in the right direction. We are moving and becoming more democratic. Mm -hmm. um, it's when you put it in that comparative dimension, you say, well, hold on, is that really true? Uh, the other thing is, I think, and and, and I think the United States. And to a lesser extent, Britain, but Britain as well, are victims of their success in the Second World War. That success um, kind of ossifies the system because the the, the, the system, you, particularly because the Second World War leads, you know, directly into the Cold War, which is mm -hmm. a struggle between systems. And so there's a belief that the system of liberal democracy triumphed and is good and doesn't need reforming as a result of that, I think. The analogy I'd make, and this is, I, I'll try to do this without confusing things. I always think the U.S. healthcare system, crazy as it is, and I'm now experiencing it, trying to like sign up for insurance and having my healthcare plan explained to me and everything else, and it is a nightmare. Um, <laughs> it's a product of the same thing. It's a product of that moment of success in the middle of the 20th century because there was largely full employment. And I realized that it was limited mm. by gender and race, but you know, there, there, there's, there's widespread employment after, after the second world war. Um, there's well-paid labor to a large extent, unionized labor, basically healthcare becomes connected to your employment because there was an assumption, well, everybody's got a job, mm. right? And so the system evolved the way it did, not because Americans are crazy. It sort of evolved that way. By contrast, you think about when the National Health Service was created in the UK right after the war, it was a necessity because the society was was so badly um, disrupted by the war. And you, the same thing happens in all, most of the countries of Europe. Um, they get their national health care systems at that moment as a result of crisis. The United States gets its out of, as a result of success, I think. And this is where I'm not sure. I, correct me if I'm wrong. The analogy I'm making is I think that also happens in the political and constitutional sphere as well, where there's a belief and, and it becomes apparent during the civil rights movement. Yeah, 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 we need to change things. But basically, the system's OK. We need the Voting Rights Act. We need the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it's all solved. Um, and, and so I think the United States uh, is a victim inadvertently of its own apparent success in the middle of the 20th century. That's my partial answer to their conundrum yeah. or, or explanation for that. It's not an answer to how to solve it. Would you agree with that as an well, argument? Well, I, I think that there's some truth to that. I think the other thing they point to 
is the American Constitution is too damn hard to amend. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they point out, you know, the various efforts to uh, replace the Electoral College, which everyone agrees is stupid, or at least vast majority of people agree is not a great way of electing the president. Um, but that, you know, various ways in which people, you know, the the, the structures for amending the Constitution are so... Um, onerous that that even when an overwhelming majority of people want to abolish the electoral college a very small minority of people in the senate could could kill it um you know and there have been at least and they cite in the article close to twelve thousand attempts to amend the u.s constitution and it's only been done 27 times which as a success rate is not very good um you know in comparison norway has had this this, this you know they, they point out has this 300 something amendments um you know, and I think the fact that that things that have a, a huge degree of popular support cannot be implemented I think is is part of the part of the issue. Um, you know, in terms of the kinds of reforms that, that other countries have adopted, um, you know, they have an interesting list of things that 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 other countries have really shifted towards in the post World War II period that I thought were fascinating, uh, just on a, a global perspective. Uh, one is proportional representation, um, which they don't have in the British Parliament, but they do have in the Scottish Parliament, which is an interesting sort of distinction between that and many places in Europe have proportional representation. Um, they point to uh, unicameral legislatures, which is what uh, most of the world now uses and most of the world has embraced since uh, the Second World War, but the United States... Um, doesn't and, and there's all kinds of anti-democratic elements to that um what other factors frank did, did they point to um again lifetime tenure for judges is, is an important feature uh the way legislatures operate so they talk about the the, the kind of cloture votes in in uh and the way that single senators can block mm. um legislation or, or in in the u.s system and, and most systems most other democracies have largely limited or have either limited or eliminated those kinds of uh, those features um, and uh, among others. So, so I think those are, yeah, I think those are interesting. And, and another interesting feature is they, most of them have sought to redress the imbalance between kind of the power of sparsely populated rural areas and more heavily populated urban areas as well in the way they've organized themselves. Um, they, they, they use the example of the way the, 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 uh, Germany, uh, is, is governed, for example. Uh, now one of the good features of the American constitution and all democratic systems need to do this is protect the rights of minorities, mm. you know, and, and not, I don't mean just kind of racial and cultural minorities, but also, Minorities of opinion. I mean, you know, mm. you don't want mob rule. One thing that I found really interesting and really struck me in this essay is um, it goes at the heart or it strikes at the heart of a lot of the arguments against these changes because small C conservatives, and I don't mean kind of conservative politicians, I mean like Edmund Burkean type conservatives who say, no, 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 Constitution should be hard to change because if you, mm. you know, you don't want disorder, you don't want anarchy, et cetera. Experience we now have, you know, if James Madison were alive today and thinking 
constitutionally, as he loved to do, he'd be studying these constitutions and saying, actually, we can have a unicameral legislature. We don't need, you know, it, it works. It won't necessarily lead to anarchy or tyranny of the majority, right. because there's not a body of evidence from, from around the world to suggest that. And I think that's really, really interesting because a lot of the arguments in favor, or, or I should put, put it another way, a lot of the arguments against changing the American constitution are more or less premised on, well, we can't do that because this might happen. Hmm. Well, we know what might happen, and it's actually, in most cases, okay. You know, Denmark, in this thing, according to the Freedom House thing, you know, Denmark, Finland, and, and, and no, no, it was Norway, Sweden, and Finland all had scores of 100 recently when it came to democracy. They're okay, even though they have they don't have the checks and balances that the American Constitution does. So um, I, I, I think that, I, I found that, interesting uh to be sure i think one of the things that really strikes me and i'm I'm sure i've said this before on our on our podcast david is the united states sees itself to the extent i can speak of the united states as a single Mm. entity um and the world sees it as a young country and a new country it's not and its political system is really old and sclerotic, mm. in fact, uh, you know, it's, it's the second oldest written constitution still in uh, force in the world. And the oldest is also within the United States. You know, the United States actually has quite an old system. But on one hand, we see ourselves as young. The world sees us, sees us as young. We're not. We're really not. And we're also seen as a country with either having a, you've heard the jibes, because if you teach American history, U.S. history outside of the United States, so oh, the country doesn't have any history, or it's really short, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, 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 it's frankly tiresome. Um, I, got, I got made fun of it at a fringe show this year for that. You could do what? Yeah, I got made fun of it at a fringe show this year for that, because they, they asked me what I did, and I started talking American history. They said, that's not real history. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, my, I, I've got a two-word answer to that, and the first word's Anglo-Saxon, but, you know. They, they, you know <laughs> and the second word is you. Um, but, but anyway, um, but, but but yeah, I mean, you get that all the time, right? But however, we, and now I'm talking about Americans as mm. you know, I'm using the royal we to, to talk about Americans generally again, and I accept that's problematic, have all kind of fallen prey to this belief. We're, we're trapped by assumptions about the history of this country and the importance of the history of this country that mm. frankly shackle us and prevent change. And let me illustrate this. I was driving to my favorite diner yesterday, um, top diner. Okay. Pat Tops in Charlottesville, if you're ever there. I highly recommend it. I was taking a friend there yesterday. And I was behind a car that had several bumper stickers. And Americans, <laughs> driving in America is very interesting because people tell you, they tell you their politics, they tell you their views on their cars in a way that isn't as common in the UK. So they had a Trump 2024 bumper sticker, but interestingly, it wasn't stuck to the car. It was taped to the inside of the window. And I thought, oh, this is somebody who wants to be able to take that off without, uh, if they want to. They, it was That was interesting. So they were a Trump supporter. They also had, you'll know the old tour slogan, Virginia is for lovers. Yes. They had a bumper sticker that said, Virginia is for gun lovers. All right. So I'm thinking, okay, this is, I think I know where this person's coming from. And they had a bumper sticker or they had a sticker on their window that said, we, the people, the first were, and, you know, kind of superimposed on a 13 star American flag, the flag of the revolution. Mm 
So now I'm, I've been fascinated in collecting examples for the past decade, really, of the use of the iconography of the revolution by different political groups in the United States, particularly on the right. So this, on one hand, was, was up a piece with that. But I was struck because I just read this essay, and I thought, that is so interesting. So the, we, the people, is, of course, the first three words of the Constitution. And what we have in the United States, and this is you're not unique to the right, because I think the left does a little bit too, but we've kind of fetishized the Constitution to such an extent, and clearly the Norwegians haven't done this, hmm. <laughs> um, to such an extent that it's now made it. So it's not just that it's difficult to amend, because it is. I think the problem's deeper rooted than that, David. I think there's an unwillingness to amend it because there's a belief that it's all, you know, that somehow we're kind of, uh, sorry, constitutional originalism, I almost mm. slipped and said biblical, <laughs> has assumed right. a kind of biblical yeah. form. You know, that it, it's like, it, it's unerring text that can't, you know, whether you think it came from God or whatever, but they can't be changed. When, as they show in this essay, the founders knew it could be changed. You know, in Jefferson fact, they changed was, it a bunch of times. Yeah, they changed it a bunch of times. They knew even the people, you know, when it came out of the Constitutional Convention in mm. the summer of 17 or September of 1787, they said, yeah, we know it's not perfect. It can be changed. We can fix. We can fix it. You know, it wasn't meant to be unerring. Um, mm. Jefferson famously thought we should have a Constitutional Convention every 19 years. Now, I think that's impractical, obviously. But but, you know, his the expression he used to use is, you know, the, the pre we shouldn't be governed by the dead hand of the past. We've made such a fetish of the Constitution, as exemplified by that car in front of me. So so mm. two of those stickers referred to the Constitution. So the the, the, the Virginians for gun lovers, mm. as I, you know, oblique reference to the Second Amendment. We the people, you know, it, we, we've made such a fetish of the Constitution that even if it were easier to amend, I'm not sure we would do it. Do you see what I, I mean? think that now I think that's right. I, I think that 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 you know, these two things are definitely working in tandem. That it's very hard to do, and you, and and there's a resistance to doing it um, because of of the, the sacred text nature of of, of the document. And um, I think that is a, a real problem because I mean, as you point out, it is a it's a um, embedded within the constitution are some very antiquated notions of, of what democracy is and how democracy could work. Um, and there's a resistance to change. And the other thing I think is going on, you know, is that Americans and American lawmakers are very resistant to looking outside of the United States for political examples. Um, in a way, I think that is less true in Europe and is less true in, in some other parts of the world uh, in which, which, you know, saying we have this problem, how do we solve it? Oh, our neighbor does X or Y, we could learn from them. That does not happen, I think, to the same extent in, in, in the halls of Congress or in our um, you know, editorial pages about how to deal with, with some of the major problems the United States is facing. Um, and, and I think, you know, this this piece in some ways speaks to that. You know, there are, was a time in which people looked to the United States about how to write constitutions. Uh, but that was a century ago, and I think now one looks to Canada for how to write a constitution. Uh, and the Canadian current Canadian constitution is in 1982, I believe. Um, and so we, we've lost our status in the world in that respect. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And again, I think this is where the United States is suffering by its apparent success. So first of all, this wasn't always true. You know, mm. 
John Adams, when he wrote the Massachusetts Constitution in 1779 that was adopted in 1780, you know, studied the constitutions and the history of constitutions and, and ancient and modern. James Madison did the same thing in the 1780s in the run-up to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. I mean, these the framers of the U.S. Constitution understood there was a lot to learn from other places. Mm. So we weren't always that way. But again, if you set yourself up, and because of the Cold War, the United States has set itself up as the leader of the democracies of the world, mm -hmm. you don't say, well, okay, we can learn from the likes of Denmark, right? Because you're, yeah. you're the leader. And, and, and so I think, I, again, I think there are kind of historic trends that have made that difficult, not least, and then there are practical things, you know, the fact that Americans, as a rule, aren't terribly good when it comes to reading foreign languages or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There are kind of cultural phenomena at work there. Sure. The other thing is, and I, I know we've discussed this in the past, I think that oldest written constitution in the world trope is a problem. Um, because, first of all, it's not in the sense that it imagines an unbroken past that extends from the summer of 17 Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 to now. And then there's, it's like a Duolingo streak. I can't possibly mm. break it. I have to keep it going, even if I don't like <laughs> it. Right? <laughs> when, of course, you know this from your period. Yeah. You know, if we if we counted republics the way the French do, we'd be on the third or fourth American republic. Because certainly <laughs> the constant, well, no, I don't yeah. mean this is a joke. It's true. You know, we get a new constitutional settlement after the Civil War. So yeah. arguably, we have a new constitution. It, that's a bit of mass reform. Might not have gone far, but really significant, right? Mm. And that's a new constitutional order as of, I don't know, 1877, say, right? Yeah. Then either the New Deal or with the civil rights legislation of the middle of the 20th century, maybe you know, we're on like the third American Republic, probably. Yeah. And if we thought of it in those terms, we might not be quite so unwilling to change it but there's a kind of belief mm -hmm. no no no. this is you know this is an unbroken line going back to 1787 we've got nothing to learn from others you know it's where we're kind of we're in a constitutional um almost a cell where the bars are shadows we could yeah. walk out of it but we're unwilling to do so uh the, the one other time period i want to sort of highlight so we don't get people writing in where, where the constitution really gets rewritten is the progressive era Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Direct election of senators and women's suffrage and, and what have you. Um, yeah, totally. You know, since you mentioned state legislatures, I mean, one of the things that strikes me also thinking about the constitution process at the state level is that state constitutions used to get rewritten all the time. You know, they got rewritten during the revolution. They got rewritten during Reconstruction. Sometimes they got rewritten more than once during Reconstruction. A bunch of them got rewritten during the Progressive Era. Uh, and while there's lots of um, amendments to state constitutions in recent years, there's never, uh, there hasn't been the same kind of whole scale rewriting of state constitutions the way that, that other nations around the world have, right? You know, so one thing with, with state legislatures and their constant or state constitutions that, that, that hasn't happened um, you know, as they haven't, most states have bicameral state legislatures. They haven't gone in this direction of a unicameral legislature, which seems like what the rest of the world has done. Um, there's one exception to that. Do you know the one state that has a unicameral legislature? Trivia question of 
Bill's significance. Frank is making a face is, here. Is it Nebraska? It is, in fact, Nebraska. You, you hey! win, the, they win the contest. <laughs> um, and that came out in the 1930s. So there was a moment in which some states are thinking about adopting this model, which is much more democratic in its structure. And, and you know, it seems like what the rest of the world is doing. Um, Nebraska embraces it. Everybody else says no thanks. A uh, number of U.S. territories also have a unicameral legislature. So Guam does, the Virgin Islands does, but, uh, which is, I think, intriguing. Uh, right. But I think we've we've exhausted this article. Uh, we recommend people go and read it and, and the forthcoming book when it comes out. Uh, time for last drops. Frank, what you got? Uh, well, David, I, I have almost no interest in the Kennedy assassination. When I say almost, I think I could say I have no interest in the Kennedy assassination. However, there's an there's an interview in today's New York Times. Uh, with uh, by Peter Baker with a man named Paul Landis, who was one of the Secret Service agents who was uh, uh, accompanying President Kennedy uh, in 1963. And, and Landis has, hasn't spoken to the press before and has, he has a forthcoming memoir. He's 88 years old. It's a very interesting article because it says a lot about historical memory and how we how we remember events and, and Landis's own memory of that of that day doesn't entirely kind of uh, mm. conform with what he said immediately after. But then, of course, he was in shock and hadn't slept very much um, in the days after the Kennedy assassination. So it's a fascinating uh, for people who are interested. In, I, I just don't have time. I, I don't tend to subscribe to conspiracy theories, so I'm not that interested in this as an incident. Uh, but it's an interesting essay when it comes to reflecting on history of memory, I think. So then I enjoyed it and found it interesting. So, okay, great. Yeah, what, what what's your last drop, David? Uh, I want to recommend a piece in AHA's uh, magazine Perspectives by Jonathan Jones, um, and it's about teaching. Where we had an episode a few weeks ago about uh, uh, AI uh, and and its effect on education in particular. Uh, and Jonathan Jones has written a piece about teaching with ChatGPT and about sort of oh, strategies for you know actually using it in the classroom and getting students to think. Critically about about you know AI, but also about historical methods and how we could sort of intersect them. You know, it's an interesting sort of counterpoint. Do you think some people are either saying, you know, uh, we talked about this in the episode, either we need to ban it in our classrooms, this is the end of you know liberal education as we know it, or we need to embrace it and just let students use it. And 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 Jonathan Jones's piece is a very thoughtful way about some strategies for how to use it. And get students to think about about its limitations. What are uh, David? I I couldn't be happier that uh, I I'm not teaching this semester because only insofar as I can avoid this problem. But what are we doing about this as a university? What, what are we, and, uh, Harvard, yeah. Well, there we, we there was a we have we received an email from somebody who makes decisions about these things um, that students are being told basically not to use it except in such of those places where it's part of the assignment. That's my understanding. Right. Now and that means that being completely said, completely unenforceable. Uh, yes. Um, above and beyond dictates of honor and you know what have you. Um, yeah, I'm I'm still trying to figure it out. I think we as a discipline are going to be having conversations about how to how to teach with and around and and against uh, various kinds of, of new technologies. But you know that's the nature of new technologies. I got a text yesterday from my daughter who lives in London and she was going with some friends 
to a pub called the Mayflower, uh, which was on the Thames. And she said, tell me what I need to know about the Mayflower, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to give a history lesson about this. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I was I was actually quite touched because I thought well, at least she didn't go to chat GPT for this. <laughs> so, well, you know, it's, it's <laughs> two steps better than Wikipedia or worse. Depending on how everyone sees these things. Well, I like right, to think okay. of myself now, David, as the kind of analog version of chat GPT, at GPT. least for my daughter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, great. Well, until next week, Frank, cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.